Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. As the war between Israel and Hamas continues, the questions continue to swirl. Are we any closer to any kind of ceasefire? Are there any any progress being made in terms of the hostages? Uh, any other progress in terms of uh, what happens next as this continues to grind on? Of course, the humanitarian crisis in Gaza is only deepening. The Israeli Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu is facing increased uh, challenges both at home and abroad. Uh, obviously, things inside of Israel, he's uh, been under immense pressure for a very long time over the course of the last year uh, on a host of things outside of uh, what took place uh, on October the 7th. And then, of course, the increased uh, international community weighing in with dissatisfaction in terms of the prosecution of the war between uh, Israel and Hamas. And so as we look at uh, where we actually are and trying to get past some of the headlines and more importantly, what comes next and how do we get to a space uh, where we can get to not just a ceasefire, uh, but beyond what happens after that? I think is the the real test. Uh, and beginning that, of course, is dealing with the hostages. Uh, some of those are American citizens. We need to keep that in mind. Uh, they have been held uh, since October the 7th after the brutality of Hamas uh, took place there. And uh, so as we go through this, again, a lot of these are, are things that we just need to think through and process in terms of where are we really? And then what's the realistic path forward? Obviously, many of these uh, challenges in the Middle East have been going on for centuries, uh, and I don't expect any of those things to be taken care of uh, overnight or with a quick uh, sweep of the pen. Uh, but there is a path to get to at least a space where both humanitarian efforts uh, can be done to help the innocents that are suffering. Uh, and obviously Israel needs to have confidence that their people won't be under attack in similar uh, ways to October the 7th, uh, which many within Hamas have continued to say they will continue to carry out. So there are some underlying things that are going to make this very difficult to navigate, uh, but let's try to navigate what we know. Uh, first, yesterday, uh, in a little bit of a surprise, as uh, President Biden was uh, just chit-chatting with some journalists at an ice cream parlor uh, as part of a campaign stop, uh, he said he actually hoped that the ceasefire agreement would be solidified by next Monday. My, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. We're not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. Uh, that was actually big breaking news coming out of the ice cream parlor uh, from President Biden. Uh, those words had not been uttered by any member of his uh his organization, anyone uh, within the Defense Department, anyone within the State Department. Uh, and so that was just a little bit of breaking news from the president. And, of course, the response to that both nationally and internationally was mm, maybe not quite so fast. Uh, but that's hopeful that at least the negotiations are moving in a positive direction, uh, enough at least to give President Biden some confidence so that there is a path forward. Now, the president uh, continued on the campaign side of uh, his day yesterday uh, going on late night television, uh, late night with Seth Meyers uh, for an interview, an interesting choice, I think, for the president who hasn't done a lot of interviews of late. Uh, the show host asked the president about uh, what was happening in the Middle East, talked about a two state solution between Israel and Palestine uh, and the state of the hostages when that kind of release or deal could be negotiated. Here's how the president responded. And so there's a process underway that I think if we get that that temporary ceasefire, we're going to be able to move in a direction where we can change the dynamic and not have a two-state solution immediately, but a process to get to a two-state solution. Now, I think that's important that the president said, look, we're not, we're not jumping to the two-state solution, but there is a path to a process towards a, a two-state solution. And the big players in that, uh, Hamas is one of those that has really been in the middle of mucking up the gears of a two-state solution. There had actually been some great progress between the United States and Israel uh, and others in the Middle East who had warmed to the idea of saying, okay, look, let's see if we can't make this work. Uh, but remember, in a two-state solution, Hamas can't exist. Uh, so there's plenty of incentive for Hamas to keep stirring things up or distracting 
Uh, so that's going to be an interesting thing to keep our eye on is what happens if things start to really progress, if part of the day after, so to speak, in terms of uh, hostages and ceasefires, if it is a path towards a two-state solution, there are some actors in the region uh, that might use that as provocation or an excuse uh, to take hostile action in the region. And so we, we really have to watch that very closely. On Sunday, I thought it was interesting, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, who was on CNN's State of the Union, uh, he talked about of uh, the state of the hostages and where things were headed in terms of those negotiations. It is true that the representatives of Israel, the United States, Egypt and Qatar met in Paris and came to an understanding among the four of them about what the basic contours of a hostage deal for temporary ceasefire would look like. Uh, there will have to be indirect discussions by Qatar and Egypt with Hamas because ultimately they will have to agree to release the hostages. That work is underway. Uh, and we hope that in the coming days, we can drive to a point where there is actually a firm and final agreement on this issue. But we will have to wait and see. So that's Jake Sullivan uh, saying, look, the contours of a deal uh, at least have been agreed upon. There are So that is hopeful, uh, and especially for those hostages and for their families uh, who have uh, just been going hour to hour, minute to minute in the uncertainty of of all of that uh, since October the 7th. Now, interestingly, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, of course, uh, is battling for his own grip on power. Uh, in an interview with Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation on Sunday, she asked the prime minister about a timeline of victory and uh, the coming threat of operation in Rafah in southern Gaza. Here's how he responded. Once we begin the Rafah operation, the intense phase of the fighting is weeks away from completion, not months, weeks away from completion. Uh, and that is, uh, we've already destroyed 18 out of the 24 Hamas uh, uh, terrorist battalions. So we, we have a few, and four of them are concentrated in Rafah. We can't leave the last Hamas stronghold without taking care of it. Obviously we have to do it. But understand too that I've asked the army to submit to me a double plan. First to evacuate, to enable the evacuation of the Palestinian civilians in Gaza and uh, obviously, second, to destroy the remaining Hamas battalions, that gets us a real, real distance towards the completion of our, our victory. And that uh, we're not going to give it up. If we have a deal, it'll be delayed somewhat, but it'll happen. If we don't have a deal, we'll do it anyway. Uh, it has to be done because total victory is our goal and total victory is within reach. So much to unpack and get to there. A lot of people are questioning Netanyahu's day after plan. We know there's been protests, including including the self-immolation of Aaron Bushnell, who died in front of the Israeli embassy in D.C. This is a long way from being done. This is just the beginning of the beginning. We'll continue to follow it here on Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. Something that you may have missed yesterday. Yesterday was actually Study Abroad Day. And in celebration, we're actually going to take a look at the late Senator Paul Simon's Study Abroad Program Act that's going through a bit of a revival in the Senate this year. Uh, it was a bipartisan bill, takes the uh, accolades on international education seriously. And uh, this is an important conversation. It's one that I think we've missed out in so many different ways. The value of that experience for our young people, for our college students in particular, that can really help reframe and reshape the way they look at the world, the way they look at our country, and the way they look at their own ability to impact their communities right here at home. Really thrilled to have joining us on the program today. Melissa Torres is the Forum on Education Abroad's president and CEO, uh, has been doing this uh, for decades, uh, oversaw 36 international study abroad centers in Asia, Europe, and Latin America. And Melissa, welcome to the show. Hi, Boyd. Thanks for inviting me here today. It's really a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, I, this is such an, an important thing, and uh, and it's one of those that's easy to get lost in all the other uh, rat race and chase we have going on in Washington these days. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is one of those areas that I think really has a significant impact on a young person. If they have that ability uh, to do a study abroad or something in another country, uh, just give us kind of the baseline of your work, what you found, and where we need to go next. Absolutely. Um, you know, we wrote this piece because it's absolutely imperative that our students and communities not be left behind 
um, study abroad enables students to develop critical skills that they need to compete in the global economy. And um, there's, a, there's a big overlap between what students learn and how they learn it with what employers are looking for. So we're talking about things like problem solving, teamwork, flexibility. Um, they're all skills that students develop in really meaningful ways through study abroad. Uh, and I think just as importantly, maybe more importantly, the U.S. needs a citizenry that can really embrace the discomfort that comes with discourse and disagreement and navigating difference, yeah. you know, and being able to do that with humility and respect. So, um, you know, we're asking Congress to act on a bill that was first introduced back in 2006, and it's really only grown more important to the future of not only the workforce and our global standing, but really the democratic foundations of this country. Yeah, I, th- I think um, it's I think it's so vital that, that we get to that. And uh, some of the things that you pointed out in your piece at thehill.com, and uh, people should check that out as well. Uh, but but that whole thing in, in terms of uh, competing in a global economy, the problem solving, the analytical skills, uh, the foreign language fluency, uh, but just this whole idea of learning to recognize and value the differences uh, of different cultures, different lifestyles, different parts of the world uh, is such a game changer, I think, for young people today uh, that I think sometimes we may have this misperception, oh, a study abroad, that's, you know, that's just a chance to go uh, play for a few months and uh, travel around Europe. Uh, uh-huh. It's much more than that. So get into some of the specifics in terms of how this impacts uh, the way our young people are better prepared for the workplace and for society. Sure, because they are um, living and studying and sometimes uh, interning in a culture that is totally new to them. It may be a different language. They're in classrooms with people who have different ideas, perspectives, um, and solutions to some of the complex problems that the world is solving. Um, And I think, you know, we're all in our, our own little Uh, media and information bubbles, and and your program does a lot to break down those barriers. Um, And I I think this is one way that we we help students to understand more about the world, more about themselves. And it's not just about the student either. It's about the communities in which they live and that are going to depend on them to be informed and responsible leaders. So whether they end up in the private sector and they have customers and clients and coworkers that are around the world and they need to know how to work and communicate with those folks or they're in public service or they're in religious life or health or education. I mean, we are a diverse community and, um, you know, and, and students need to be able to navigate that. Yeah. It's, and it's so interesting what happens when you start to just change that perspective. Uh, I remember uh, working uh, back at an international organization years ago and, you know, you'd come up with this brilliant idea and, you know, a great tagline for something. And then someone would say, yeah, but that doesn't translate well in Japanese or, you know, what, that's never going to work in France or, you know, the, the African continent's just not going to buy into that. And so you have to start thinking differently and more holistically uh, and it just changes yeah. your perspective. Absolutely. And, and listening, right? Listening yeah. is a really important, important skill and not just throwing out a comment on social media or, um, you know, only talking to people who reinforce the perspective mm. that you already have. Yeah. Um, it's, it's just, it's those conversations and whether they're occurring with a homestay family or they're occurring in uh, a residence hall or they're in a classroom with a professor who maybe has never been to the United States um, and is teaching a subject that the student may not have taken on their home campus Mm. or in a language uh, that that the student is is learning. It gives you a whole new appreciation for how vast and complex and beautiful the world is. And uh, and I I think it's really uh, it's an important way for students to to develop that that sense of awe and, and kindness to others. I love that. We we talk about awe and wonder on this show a lot, and uh, the the world will never be uh, lacking for wonders. But it's that lack of wonder uh, that often gets us into trouble as we, we get as we don't really value those differences and and celebrate those differences. Have some holy envy for some of those differences across cultures. Uh, I want to quickly get into uh, the fact this is a bipartisan 
bicameral uh, approach, and and often for mm-hmm. for students, uh, some of them I think are self selecting out just because of the thought of the cost of a study abroad. Uh, give us a sense in terms of what this bill does to help bridge that gap and create opportunity for more to have that kind of international experience. Mm-hmm. Well, you're so right. Um, finances are the number one reason why students opt out of studying abroad. Um, there's a tremendous percentage. I think it's uh, 72% or, uh, or more of students coming into college say they want to study abroad. Um, and then um, because of the, the high cost of education, uh, because some students have to work uh, in order to pay tuition or to support their families, um, they're not able to study abroad. So a, a big part of this bill will be providing funding that students can use towards their study abroad experiences. Um, there'll be some funding that will also go to colleges and universities um, to help them develop study abroad programs that are affordable and are subsidized for students. Um, and, and we also want to make sure that students have opportunity to go beyond Western Europe. Yes. Nothing wrong with Western Europe. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. Um, but a lot of our a lot of our partners and clients and, and future customers are in Africa and Latin America, yeah. and um, and we don't have as many study abroad programs there and as many students traveling there as as we need to. Yeah, um, uh, this is a so, this, this is a great one. We're going to continue to follow this one as we move along. Melissa Torres is the Forum on Education Abroad's president and CEO. Again, this is a bipartisan bicameral bill. Uh, working through Congress right now to make sure that funding is in place uh, for those experiences. And uh, as we often say here in the state of Utah, uh, which is no longer just the crossroads to the West, but a crossroads to the world, uh, and we need students, we need young people with that international perspective and vision and that ability to value the differences across all of those cultures uh, is important for freedom uh, all across the world and for those conversations. And Melissa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Boyd. Your uh, listeners could go to nafta.org slash take action if they'd like to urge the Utah delegation to support the bill. And I really appreciate being here today. Awesome. Fantastic. Melissa Torres, uh, once again, uh, joining us. And uh, to me, this is one of those important things. Congress doesn't have a lot of things that they have to do. This is one of those like, okay, that one can make a difference. Uh, And so that's worth checking out and exploring today for sure. And that wraps up our number one of Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. We'll step aside for some top of the hour news. When we come back, we're going to dive deep into the shutdown showdown coming up Friday. What can be done? What's the path? How do we get out of this Groundhog Day? We'll talk about that coming up next. Stick around. We'll be right back. KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson. On Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio. Well, if you missed the beginning of the show today, right at the one o'clock hour, we talked about how congressional leaders met at the White House to meet with uh, President Biden. And of course, you had the law firm, as we like to call it, of Schumer, McConnell, Johnson and Jeffries. Uh, I could say it like a like a law firm. Uh, you could say Schumer, McConnell, Johnson and Jeffries. I think that's the right way to say that. Uh, they had their meeting, but now we want to get past the headlines of just the meeting. Let's find out what happened on the backside of the meeting. Then we'll unpack if anything is going to happen as a result of the meeting. So let's begin hour number two. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. All right, so let's get to the after party. Uh, after the meeting, inside the White House, again, uh, you had the four leaders, the two Democrats, the two Republicans, and President Biden all in the room. And let's see what they said about the meeting, and then we'll unpack about what they're actually going to do about the meeting. Those are two very different things, by the way. But let's start with the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. He laid out his priorities heading into the meeting and the message he had for President Biden. When I showed up today, my purpose was to express what I believe is the obvious truth, 
and that is that we must take care of America's needs first. When you talk about America's needs, you have to talk first about our open border. The other big priority for our country, of course, is the funding of our government. And we have been working in good faith around the clock every single day to get that job done. We're very optimistic. We believe that we can get to agreement on these issues and prevent a government shutdown. Speaker Johnson also addressed the uh, spending package that would provide aid to our allies abroad, including Ukraine. It was a big part of the discussion in the meeting today. And here's the way he described that particular bill. You also heard, I'm sure, that there was um, discussion about the supplemental uh, spending package. And uh, I was very clear with the president and all those in the room that the House is actively uh, pursuing and uh, investigating all the various options on that. And we will address that in a timely manner. But again, the first priority of the country is our border and making sure it's secure. I believe the president can take executive authority right now today to change that. It's time for action. It is a catastrophe and it must stop. So that's uh, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson coming out of the White House following those meetings, uh, reiterating really the the key points that everybody was on. And that is uh, we need to secure the border. We need to fund the government. That's a big part of the equation that has to be done by midnight on Friday uh, or there will be at least a partial government shutdown. Uh, and I would note, and we'll come back to this uh, at 2.20 when James Walner joins us, we'll break down what actually has to happen between now and midnight on Friday and how that is all going to happen or not happen. Uh, it's going to get very dicey and very interesting. Uh, for his part, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer expressed some optimism that a shutdown could be prevented, but he was also very clear to float the necessity that there'll probably have to be one more short-term continuing resolution to make it happen. Well, it was both a productive and an intense meeting. Productive meeting on the government shutdown. We are making good progress. Uh, We made it very clear. The the speaker said unequivocally he wants to avoid a government shutdown. We made it clear that that means not letting any of the government appropriations bills lapse, which means you need some CRs to get that done. We're making good progress, and we're hopeful we can get this done really quickly. Now, let's go to the minority leader in the House of Representatives, Hakeem Jeffries. Uh, He echoed much of what Senator Schumer had to say in terms of being optimistic that uh, they could avoid the government shutdown. uh, But they are going to have to do some things specifically in terms of a continuing resolution, keeping the spending going on current levels. Here's how uh, Mr. Jeffries described it. I'm cautiously optimistic that we can do what is necessary within the next day or so to close down these bills and avoid a government shutdown. At the same time, it may be important to extend the pending expiration of the eight additional bills that are scheduled to lapse on March 8th so that good faith, tough negotiations can continue in the absence of a government shutdown. Now, we're going to unpack all of that Uh Clearly, uh, Representative Jeffries was talking about the fact we have to shut down these bills, meaning we don't have time to debate them or amend them. We just have to get them done so that we can keep the government open. He also mentioned that uh, we would need to push things out, continuing resolution, so that they could continue to negotiate. We'll talk about what that means uh, with James Wallner coming up at 2.20. But I want to get to the kind of the back half of their conversation inside the Oval Office today. And Senator Schumer said that during the meeting, uh, things shifted from funding the government uh, to a very clear message around a spending package for Ukraine and why it is time to get that piece of the puzzle done. But we made it clear to him we can't tarry or the war could be lost. And second, we had to we wanted to do border and have a tough, secure border plan. But he can't say it won't do Ukraine until we get border. He's tried to do border for six months and couldn't come up with a single Democratic vote. Uh, Senator Schumer also went on to say that this is one of those moments in history that matter and that the speaker is going to have to get on board and get something done or he's going to have to live with the consequences of dropping the ball. We said to the speaker, get it done. I told him this is one of the moments, I said, I've been around here a long time. It's maybe four or five times that history is looking over your shoulder. And if you don't do the right thing, whatever the immediate politics are, you will regret it. I told him two years from now and every year after that, because really it's in his hands. We told him 
how important it was. It was passionate. So I think one thing that was interesting in there that was a little bit subtle from Senator Schumer. So he started with a very high visionary statement of, hey, history has its eye on you. History is going to note what you do or don't do in this moment. But then he immediately went political and said, you'll regret it two years from now, meaning the next election cycle, uh, that this will cost you if you don't get this done. Uh, And sadly, I think uh, Senator Schumer sort of undercut uh, his own moral authority uh, by first saying, hey, this is a historic moment. We have to do what's right in the eyes of history uh, and in the cause of freedom to, hey, if you don't do this, it's going to cost you politically. So you really ought to think about doing it because it'll be better for you politically in the end. Uh, and to me, that is the problem with all of these conversations is regardless of what happens in the room. And we don't know exactly what was said in the room because only five people were in the room. Uh, also part of a problem. Uh, But then the fact that you come out and you talk politically uh, is part of the problem. And so we we have to be able to get back to what it is that truly matters. And that always starts with getting to the right process, because the right process will lead you to the right outcome, the right policy outcome, which is in turn what is best for the American people. So we're going to stay with this conversation because this is going to get hot and heavy uh, over the next few days as we barrel our way towards uh, Friday and a potential shutdown. I don't think there will be. Put your panic button away. James Walner is going to join us next to unpack what is likely to happen over the next 72 hours that will keep the government funded, kick the can down the road, uh, keep everything rolling along as is, but not solve the bigger problem. That's what I want to get to. We'll be right back. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Get deeper insights on the news from Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as always. And it is a spring day in Utah with a little bit of snow, followed by some big sunshine. But it's actually Groundhog Day because, once again, we are back to the shutdown showdown, uh, barreling towards Friday night, midnight. Uh, we just went through some of the comments coming out of the meeting at the White House uh, with the firm, as we like to refer to it, uh, the leaders of both the House and the Senate. So you have Schumer, McConnell, Jeffries and Johnson, a uh, perfect law firm uh, sitting in there with the president. And now the question is, now what do they do? We know what they said. Now what are they going to do and how can they possibly do it? And so we always turn to the sage of the Senate, James Walner, senior fellow at the R Street Institute, great thinker, great writer, and uh, joining us from somewhere in a secure, undisclosed location in the Everglades. Uh, James, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a balmy 82 degrees down here. So. <laughs> Well, that's a good that's a good place to be. Uh, as we look at the uh, one more round of the shutdown showdown, uh, given the time frame that's left on this one, uh, what is it that has to be done? And as you look at it, what is most likely to be done uh, over the next 72 hours or so? Well, they don't give themselves a lot of time. And I think it would be it's important for your listeners to, to know, to remember that the lawmakers have been gone on vacation back home in their districts and their states instead of in Congress in Washington, D.C., trying to tackle this issue. So they've known this deadline at the end of the week is there all along. They just chose to uh, not be there to tackle that deadline. So I think they haven't left themselves a lot of time. I think on the leadership's part, that is partly by design. Um, But the rank and file, I think, are going to be very frustrated with where Mm. they are going to end up at the end of the week. Uh, And I think that's, again, uh, partly by design on the part of the leadership. Yeah, I thought it was so interesting coming out of the White House meeting. uh, Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House, uh, said uh, he said it in an interesting way. He said we have to shut down these bills in order to keep open the government. Uh, Describe for us what shut down a bill uh, actually means in terms of the process. So the way that we make decisions in Congress today when it comes to government funding is that we meet in secret. And we negotiate bills and then we come out of those meetings and then we pass those bills or as the case may be, we don't pass those bills. And so everything leading up to those negotiations is is posturing, trying to get 
the best possible leverage heading into those negotiations. And so what uh, the minority leader uh, Jeffries is referencing here is basically saying, no, we don't agree with these bills that the House Republican Conference can pass. We don't think those are a good idea. And we are going to proactively reject them out of hand so that we can hopefully get them back to the negotiating table so they don't call our bluff and actually force us to vote against those bills on the floor. But if the case may be, we're willing to do that as well. But it's all designed to get better bills because we don't write bills on the floor of the House and Senate anymore. We write them behind these closed doors. Yeah. And and then there's always that uh, additional shutdown portion, which is uh, we have to shut it down before it gets to the floor because, of course, we're in a hurry now because we've been gone for two weeks. Uh, And so we don't have time to actually read these bills or debate them on the floor of the House or the Senate. We just have to have an up or down vote. Uh, which, again, makes it easier for leadership to say, hey, this is the best we could do. Uh, you're going to have to bite the bullet and uh, vote yes, just so we can keep the government open. That's right. Look, coming out of this meeting at the White House, the leaders have, I have no doubt, would love to pass any bills right now. And they could probably come to an agreement pretty quickly on what those bills would be. I think it's the, the, the challenge for them is their rank and file, mm-hmm. more so in the House than in the Senate, but also in the Senate. And what happens is that leaders often will negotiate bills and then come to find out that their rank and file do not like those bills, which is where we're probably headed with the four bills that expire at the end of the week. Uh, And the rank and file, in particular, House conservatives are demanding uh, funding riders or or policy changes. Uh, It's perfectly legitimate to do so. The bill itself will be full of riders already. Uh, But they're asking for more riders or different riders. And the Democrats are rejecting those out of hand. And so it'll be interesting to see if we end up with no bill and a a short-term continuing resolution to keep funding going for another week or two, or if we'll end up with a bill or we'll end up with a shutdown. Yeah, And I know a a lot of the conversation has been uh, around, okay, should we just do this? I know there's a a faction within the House that says, hey, if we're going to... If we're going to punt, let's let's punt far, not short. <laughs> let's let's punt for a year, uh, and uh, and then to get to some of those automatic one percent cuts uh, that were negotiated as part of last year's drama. That's that's correct. And there's uh, as part of the current law that we have now, if that separated these four bills from the four bills that were going to expire on March eighth. So next week we're going to be back at it again uh, with four harder bills. I think much more controversial bills. Um, But if they can't get an agreement on any set of these bills, then pursuant to that earlier uh, law, what's going to happen is that you have an across-the-board cut in April. And that's going to upset Democrats. It's going to upset, I think, national security hawks and Department of Defense-minded Republicans who want to have more spending. And so you might see, I think you'll see this sooner in the Senate, we'll see a, a coalition of those forces coming together to avoid that. Um, I think but the question is, will they uh, do they want to avoid that so much that they will accept and negotiate on some policy riders that the House Republicans are demanding? Or will they try to somehow get a bill to the floor in the House that, that funds the government um, that circumvents the House uh, leadership and its speaker? Yeah, and I think all of that is amazing because we're only talking about one percent, right? These are one percent automatic cuts. Uh, you would think uh, hearing some of those uh, weeping and wailing in Washington that uh, that this was like a 50 percent cut. It's a one percent it's a cut, uh, which is interesting that there's this much trauma and drama over one percent. Tells you where our spending mindset is. Uh, I don't know a household in America that if you said, hey, you're going to have to cut one percent, they're going to cut one percent one way or another, uh, whether it's through a soda or uh, the snacks at the gas station, somehow they're going to find a way to, to do that. Uh, give us a, a sense, James, uh, just in our last minute or so here, uh, in terms of if they do this continuing resolution, are we still going to see this stair-step uh, kind of approach from Speaker Johnson? Are we just going to see these go a couple of weeks down the road? Uh, what does that look like? What do you anticipate? Well, the scuttlebutt on Capitol Hill right now is maybe a continuing resolution through March 26th or so. That would give them time uh, while also preserving the ability to avoid that 1% cut. They can always turn that cut off, too. I mean, they can pass a continuing resolution that goes into April or beyond. It also turns that cut off and and avoids that sequester, which is what they've routinely done in the past when uh, put into this circumstance as well. Um, But this is also why lawmakers don't like continuing resolutions because they continue funding at last year's levels. And lawmakers, uh, you know, if you go forward, you automatically, with the baseline, not to get too complicated, but you get more money. It's assumed every year that the baseline increases with inflation. 
And as we know, inflation's been rather significant lately as well. And so what happens is that the government gets more money every year just to stay even. And that more money can be then used to invest in different priorities that lawmakers have. And so when you have a continuing resolution, it doesn't take that into account. They're already seeing that as a cut. And on top of that, you factor in an across-the-board 1% cut, and then they are it's like the end of the world for them. <laughs> oh, and I'm, and I'm going to write it down right now because I think your prediction of March 26th is spot on because that is the day that Congress wants to leave for the Easter recess. Uh, well, there you so go. There you go. I think you have picked it to the day. So we're going to note that in the files here on Inside Sources. Uh, March 26th will be the next shutdown showdown. You can stay tuned for uh, all of the theatrics of that coming up. James Walner, as always, thanks for helping us break it all down and uh, look at the process. If we could get to the process, folks, we'd get to way better policy and much better governing. James, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. All right. That's James Walner. Sage of the Senate right there. And uh, I know there's a lot of process pieces in there. And the interesting thing is that we're most likely to just see a little punt uh, for a few weeks. And I think James probably got it right. I bet it's March 26th uh, because that will create a new urgency. And the new urgency will be you all want to go home for a couple of weeks during the Easter and spring break. And that's what they're going to want to do. So they're going to want to get it done. And so somehow they will either do another continuing resolution uh, or they'll actually get the job done. And then I'll just remind you uh, that they're working on their homework from last year. Uh, They really should be working on this year's budget and this year's funding of the government. Because as we continue to remind everyone, September 30th always comes every year without fail. Congress has got to do the job. James is helping us break it all down. We'll step aside for some bottom of the hour news. More Inside Sources coming up next. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. As we covered yesterday, the Supreme Court started hearing a case uh, regarding net choices, the net choices case against Texas and the state of Florida. Uh, proposed social media regulations, uh, and it's a really interesting thing to to keep digging into uh, because there are such interesting ramifications and far-reaching, unintended consequences that I think could come out of this. Now, we won't have a decision, of course, until in the spring, uh, and it will be very fascinating for me to see whether the court just sends this back down, whether they try to narrow the scope. Uh, Those are all things that will be very interesting. And uh, if you missed it yesterday, we also carried uh, part of a conversation between Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Amy uh, uh, Coney Barrett. Excuse me. Uh, They had a fascinating conversation about how these conversations play out behind closed doors at the Supreme Court and how they go back and forth. And sometimes as they interact with one another and listen, listen and ask questions of one another, Sometimes to take the heat off or turn the temperature down on very divisive things, one of the things that the court generally does will either send things back for more consideration or they will narrow the scope uh, of a particular ruling and say, we're not going to apply it to everything. We're going to apply it to this specific thing. And then we can have another conversation about other areas or other areas of unintended consequences. I think that's really interesting. Uh, So with that as a backdrop, uh, I want to just dig in a little further in terms of what we covered yesterday from this hearing and some of the takeaways from these arguments on social media laws. And obviously, when you're dealing with social media companies and platforms and you're dealing with things like free speech rights, uh, things are going to get messy very quickly. Uh, I think it's important to note that the cases like this are clearly going to shape the course of of Internet discourse for a long time to come. So these really do matter. So both Florida and Texas have enacted laws that limit the ability of large Internet companies to curate what appears on their platforms. Now, part of that is in response uh, to what some conservatives have considered censorship of views from the political right by Silicon Valley companies on the left, uh, all in the name of, you know, uh, curbing hate speech or misinformation or disinformation. 
So all of that uh, is the backdrop to these cases. Again, the rulings on these won't come out until the spring. But it's really interesting to to look at those and what is the responsibility of that provider. A lot of the arguments uh, were were kind of interesting to me in the in the fact that they all kind of harken back to previous breakthroughs in technology. Some were comparing them to early phone companies and what they were carrying, and that surely a phone carrier couldn't uh, discriminate based on somebody's speech or who they were trying to call. Uh, the other side uh, pointed out that this was more like a newspaper and some of the laws and the case law that is standing in terms of requirements uh, for balance in terms of political campaigns and coverage in papers. And so all of these things, uh, as you can imagine, get pretty messy pretty fast. Uh, now, one of the interesting notes uh, from Paul Clement, who's the lawyer for Net Choice uh, in this case, he argued that censorship was the wrong word uh, when it's not the government acting and that the companies were exercising editorial judgment. So that's an interesting component to this. Uh, if it were the government saying, well, you can say this, but not that, then, yeah, that could definitely get into that censorship space very fast. Uh, if it is a platform, you can say, well, no, that's editorial judgment. That's protecting their brand. That's protecting uh, their viewers or subscribers or members, whatever it may be. Uh, Clement uh, contended that it was unconstitutional under the First Amendment to compel the companies to publish views against their will. So this was where the argument got into this whole idea of, is, is it, are these platforms more like a newspaper or are they more like a telephone? Uh, and the reality is, is they're probably not either of those in the end. Uh, and so the complication, I think, is going to be how they choose to apply these particular laws uh, and what that's going to mean moving forward. And so, again, we have to be very careful, uh, one, that this doesn't drift into government censorship. That's a big problem that everybody should worry about, regardless of whether uh, or not uh, you agree with someone politically or any other kind of view uh, on the issues of the day, especially the social issues of the day. Uh, but you have to get to this whole idea of free speech and then this idea of, of curation and editorial control uh, becomes a really interesting argument. And, and I, to me, the most interesting thing of all of this is that both sides on these cases are arguing on the basis and the merits of free speech. And so then the question is, who's treading on it? Who's protecting it and preserving it? They're both making the case that, you know, they're on the side of the angels uh, in terms of protecting uh, important free speech and not allowing everything to get just uh, muddied into the, the muck of it all. Uh, so we're going to continue to watch all of those things as these cases uh, continue to roll forward. I actually think the more important conversation is not whether the government is controlling that speech or whether a platform is controlling that speech, I think the most important conversation we have to get to is what are we doing to control our own speech? And what are we doing uh, when we are served up by a social media platform based on the algorithms, based on what we're clicking on or liking or following or reading or viewing on TikTok? Uh, what's our responsibility in all of that? Because what gets validated gets repeated. And when we live in this society where the clicks, the likes, the, the dopamine rush that comes as we scroll through things and swipe on things, uh, we're kind of creating our own bubble. We're sort of being our own editorial board and telling the platforms, this is what I want more of. And so they give us more. And we swipe more, we scroll more, we click more, we like more. And as a result, we get more. So while everyone's got a role to play in this, uh, I think the most important place to start is your digital device, your conversations, uh, and what you're putting out there uh, into the social media world as well. So everyone's got a role to play. Everyone's got responsibilities uh, as it relates to all of these things. There will be cases coming uh, from the Supreme Court that will shape how some of these things move going forward. Uh, but uh, I will repeat, I think the most important case is your own case uh, as to what you're going to view, what you're going to click and like, and then what are you going to put out 
on your social media. All right, we're going to go ahead and step aside for one last break. When we come back, some final thoughts on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. Great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson. As we round out the show today, I want to go back to conversation from yesterday about an important conversation that took place between two Supreme Court justices that are pretty far apart, probably on the ideological spectrum, maybe even in the in way that they uh, interpret the Constitution or approach their job on the bench. But they said some things that have kept me thinking and thinking again uh, about how they go about the process at the Supreme Court. It's one of those things that, on one hand, you wish you could be in the room where it happened just to observe it. I'd love to be there just to see how these conversations take shape and what actually happens as they're forming these opinions, as they're writing these opinions, making these rulings. Uh, Of course, on the other hand, I really don't want cameras in there uh, because that changes everything. We've seen the uh, performative politics that we have uh, on the floor of the House and the Senate uh, in a host of other places in our country. So I don't think we need that. I don't think that would be helpful in particular. But I would love to just be able to watch, fly on the wall, uh, kind of watching of the process of how they go about it, because I think it's instructive in terms of the way we should be having conversations in our communities and around the kitchen table as well. So uh, this was a conversation. It was at the National Governors Association. Of course, it was at the invitation of uh, both Governor Spencer Cox and uh, also a good friend of the show, uh, Judge Thomas Griffith, uh, retired from the D.C. Circuit. He uh, really brought all of this together. And so I want to start with Justice Barrett. She spoke on the difference between our political system and the process of the Supreme Court in analyzing and and discussing critical issues. We don't have press conferences um, and that sort of thing. So really, the product of our work is the opinion. If you want to know what the court's reasoning is, you have to look at the opinion because it explains the decision. Last year, there was the student loan case, and I joined the chief's majority opinion, and Justice Sotomayor joined Justice Kagan's dissent. There was a vigorous debate in the country about the student loan forgiveness program, but the opinion didn't mirror that debate. It wasn't about whether loan forgiveness is a good thing or a bad thing or a desirable thing or not. It was about the scope of a statute. So really important. I I love the fact that Justice Barrett pointed out that, look, this was a hotly contested issue in the country. But when the justices went behind closed doors that wasn't the discussion. It wasn't about how many people were for it and how many people were against it. The discussion was about what does the law say and then how do we apply it? That keeps a conversation in a much different space than you're just than when you're just yelling pejoratives, whether in person or online, at someone you disagree with. So I love that Justice Barrett says, look, we have to we have to step back. And then we have to follow a process. It's a disciplined process. Remember, dismantling does not take a lot of discipline. Uh, Just yelling at the opposition requires no moral character or fiber or thought. Justice Barrett saying we have to do it different because it's not a popularity contest. It's not even a democracy behind those closed doors. It is about what is the application of the law. Now, Justice Sonia Sotomayor talked about the damage of the political parties and how they've actually impacted the reputation and perception of the Supreme Court. Take a listen. I think the worst thing that's happened to the judiciary is political parties. We don't come into this work as a Republican or a Democrat. We don't even come to it as an originalist or a plain text. You come into it as a judge who believes that our job is to find the best answer to the legal questions that the court is presented with. And so I think that's sacred to almost all of us. And remember, thankfully for us, presidents don't last that long, right? There's eight years. (laughs) So for us to be beholden to one of them is a little crazy, you know? No, seriously, there, there is built into the system a protection 
which is lifetime appointment that should give us the freedom to grow as we grow in the job as well. So many important things there from Justice Sotomayor, uh, I think, in terms of this whole concept that they have this sacred, they hold it sacred, this obligation to find the best solution and the best path. I I love that she pointed out the fact that none of them are beholden to presidents. Presidents just don't last that long, (laughs) maximum of eight years. Uh, So why would they be holding to them when they really have to get to their bigger part of their job? And the bigger part of their job is to find the best solution, to apply the law, to follow the process as outlined in the Constitution. I think that's so important. Uh, Those are refreshing moments for me. Uh, Those are things that give me a lot of hope in terms of the debate and the kinds of conversations we have in this country. Uh, And I'll just close out the, uh, the day today. I had another one of those moments that always gives me great hope. Uh, Sometimes you can get a little discouraged about the politics in this country, uh, what's going on politically, what's happening in Congress or in the White House. Uh, I spent part of my day today with the Rotary Club in Salt Lake City. And I'm telling you, if you're ever in doubt, if you're ever losing hope in the country, just go show up at a Rotary Club. Triple dog dare you. Triple dog dare you. Uh, There is no way to go into that group of people who is there to make sure that they pursue the right kinds of conversations, that they're looking at the right opportunities to make a difference in their community and in their neighborhoods uh, and walk away without feeling like, oh, there's, we're going to be just fine. And as long as there are organizations like Rotary and other groups like that in our country, we will be just fine uh, because that is the place where the heart and soul of America actually lives and dwells and is thriving, by the way, uh, in amazing ways. And we need more people to be part of those kinds of things. De Tocqueville said that's the magic of America, this free association, this ability, this desire, this willingness of the people of America to come together, not by government mandate, not because they have to, but because they want to associate and be connected and do good things together. It's the stickiness of serving together, working alongside one another for the betterment of the community or society that creates thick relationships that go well beyond politics and will actually sustain us through the tough times and help us maximize the good times for the benefit of the future generations. Well, that wraps it up for us on Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson. Thanks for joining us today. Big thanks to the Rotary Club, Salt Lake City. And as you go out into the world today, make sure you see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference. KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station.